Art takes, not hot takes. This is Everyone is Wrong, a counterintuitive pop culture podcast. I'm your host, Seth Sommerfeld. Thanks for listening. It is about time to re-enter The Matrix. The fourth film in the franchise, The Matrix Resurrections, opens the week of this episode's release, so there was an obvious episode that needed to be done. So obvious that when I originally pitched this show to friends of mine, so many people broached the topic that I had to make this into the first group episode of Everyone is Wrong. My guests today serve as the ragtag crew of my subterranean hovercraft, are all noted goth ravers, and are always there to give me a call to help me get out of a pickle. They have jacked into the mainframe to defend the Wachowski siblings' much maligned Matrix sequels, The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions, from the hordes of like-minded Agent Smiths wishing to snuff them out of existence. Everyone is wrong, but Allison McManus, Jason Baxter, Ian Reagans, and Peter Richards aren't. Thanks for coming on, y'all. Thanks for having us. Hey, super happy to be here. Yes, uh, everybody but Peter has been here before, uh, so go check out past episodes on things like Baron Corbin and the Star Wars prequels, and now I'm blanking on Ian's Mr. <laughs> What's the name of it? Mr. Brooks. Mr. Brooks. <laughs> Mr. Brooks. I, w- I was going to say Mr. Banks. I'm like, that's a different movie. They got to save Mr. Banks. Yes, exactly. So let's get into the background of the Matrix sequels, because this episode will probably take a while. For starters, The Matrix was a groundbreaking 1999 science fiction action film that put the writing-directing team of the Wachowski siblings on the cinematic map. The movie follows Thomas Anderson, a.k.a. the hacker Neo, played by Keanu Reeves. Neo is contacted by mysterious hackers who help him escape equally mysterious agents trying to follow him. He's tracked down by the sleek femme fatale trinity, Carrie Ann Moss, who takes him to a quasi-mystic named Morpheus, Lawrence Fishburne. Morpheus gives Neo the choice between taking a red pill and seeing the real world or taking the blue pill and going back to his life. He takes the red pill and discovers that his Late 1990s reality was actually a computer simulation. In fact, it's far in the future, and the battle between humans and artificial intelligent robots has basically been won by the robots. They use humans as batteries and keep them occupied by plugging them into a computer simulation known as the Matrix. The few unplugged humans either live in the subterranean city of Zion or venture to battle the machines by leaving and getting into the Matrix. Morpheus, captain of the Nebuchadnezzar hovership, searched for Neo and saved him because he believes he is the chosen one, as prophesied by an even more mystical being named the Oracle, played by Gloria Foster. And after a lot of philosophy discussions, bolts fired, kung fu punches, a love story between Neo and Trinity, and a showdown with noted computer program agent Smith, played by Hugo Weaving, and some reality-bending manipulations of gravity, it seems like Neo is actually the one, due to his reality-bending powers, that he possesses in The Matrix. The film was a hit in every sense imaginable, becoming an instant classic. Released on March 31st, 1999, it went on to make over $464 million at the box office. It was instantly lauded at its time for its game-changing special effects and dense pop philosophy lessons it won four oscars best visual effects best film editing best sound effects editing and best sound 
It sits at 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, though only 76% among top critics, as an audience score of 85%. So with that as the base, the hype for the Matrix sequels was just about as big as you could get in the post-Phantom Menace, pre-Marvel Cinematic Universe film realm. And, well, a lot of people felt let down by what the Matrix sequels delivered. The Matrix Reloaded and the trilogy concluding The Matrix Revolution were both released in 2003 in May and November, respectively. The creative teams and cast basically all carried over from the original films to both sequels, with one notable exception that we will get to later. We're going to get very spoilery here, so be prepared if for some reason you haven't watched The Matrix sequels in the 18 or so years you've had the chance to do that. The Matrix Reloaded... Oh my gosh, there's so much. (laughs) These are all so dense. The Matrix Reloaded opens six months after The Matrix ends, though that's not specifically made clear in the movie. I had to look that up on Wikipedia. Uh, With Neo having dreams of Trinity possibly dying. The hover ships are called back to Zion because there is an impending attack from the machines. Also, Agent Smith has gone rogue from the rest of the computerized agents after his encounter with Neo and has begun taking over other creatures by making them clones of himself, sort of just adapting them to become him. After a long, long time of nothing really happening, Neo enters the Matrix and talks to the Oracle, who says he must find a key master to access the source of the Matrix. Neo then battles an army of Agent Smith clones. After that battle, Neo, Trinity, and Morpheus go to meet up with Merovingian, a French mafia guy played by Lambert Wilson, and they go to meet him because he's holding the Keymaker hostage. After various extensive battles, including a lauded scene that even the haters like, which is the freeway action sequence, they get the Keymaster to safety. Crews from the other hover ships join the Nebuchadnezzar in a heist-style sequence to take down the defenses so that Neo, Morpheus, and the Keymaster can enter the Source. Trinity doesn't initially plug into the Matrix as to prevent Neo's visions of her dying from coming true. But when things go haywire, Trinity must plug into the Matrix to save the day. Neo makes it to the Source, where he meets the Architect, a godlike creator who tells him he's not the first chosen one, and he must choose between resetting the system to save Zion or going back to save Trinity. Neo chooses love and Trinity, failing to save her, but then bringing her back to life with his powers. The Nebuchadnezzar crew must abandon the ship as it is attacked by sentinel machines, but Neo allows them to escape somehow by using his in-matrix powers in the real world. And then he goes into a coma-like state, The crew gets picked up by the hovership Hammer and Cliffhanger, though not that big of a cliffhanger because, again, the next movie would come out in a few months. And that next movie is The Matrix Revolutions, which opens with Neo in the Hammer's medical bay in a coma beside Bane, a suspected human traitor who is also in a coma. Despite not being plugged in the Matrix, Neo is actually trapped in a subway station between the Matrix and reality. He is stranded there because the trainkeeper is loyal to Merovingian, so Morpheus, Trinity, and the Oracle's bodyguard 
Seraph must storm that dude's base to force him to free Neo. Once freed, Neo visits the Oracle, who now looks different because Gloria Foster sadly passed away between the two filmings of this movie and had to be recast. And while meeting the Oracle, he gets some advice. The last advice from the Oracle, it turns out, because once Neo leaves, Agent Smith storms the Oracle's apartment and assimilates her. Back in the real world, Neo convinces Captain Naobi, played by Jada Pinkett Smith, to let him and Trinity take her ship, the Logos, to the Machine City while the rest of the party head back to Zion on the hammer to try and defend the city. Bane awakens, kills the medtech, and stows away on the Logos, eventually attacking Neo and Trinity. It turns out Bane is a real-world corruption of Agent Smith, and he blinds Neo before Neo is able to kill him. There is a super long battle between the humans and the machines back at Zion, culminating in the hammer getting back just in time to set off an EMP to temporarily delay the assault. Meanwhile, Neo and Trinity reach the Machine City, setting up the trilogy's finale, which includes one last showdown between Neo and Agent Smith. And woof, that's a big information dump, but that's what happens in the Matrix sequels. Both movies were big box office hits in 2003, but you can even see the diminishing hype levels in the ticket sales between the two movies mere months apart. The Matrix Reloaded brought in $739 million at the box office, while Revolutions, while still a big financial hit, did a pretty hard nosedive to only $427 million, a little bit above half of what the first sequel did. Somewhat surprisingly, because these films do not have a great rep in the general discourse, critics actually were very supportive of Reloaded. The Rotten Tomatoes score is 73%, though only 65% among top critics, with an audience score of 72. Revolutions, however, felt the backlash with a Rotten score of 35%, 22% among top critics, but still with a fresh audience score of 60%, which is kind of shocking to me because I, outside of the people that are on this Zoom, if you bring up the Matrix sequels, most people are not super duper supportive of like, actually, yeah, they're, they're good, which is why we're doing this. So before we go into critics quotes, uh, what were y'all's personal experiences with the Matrix sequels? Yeah, this is Ian. I'll go ahead. So I saw the original Matrix in the theater in 1999 when it came out. I was 14 years old and loved it, of course, as as most everyone else did. It was kind of a perfect movie for a 14-year-old kid, which is arguably what the audience for all of the movies were. But um, even my dad ended up getting really into it, which it didn't seem like something that my dad would be really into, but we were talking about it a lot. And of course, all my friends... Then I saw the second one. It came out. When did you say it came out? In May, two thousand. Yeah, Is that right. May two thousand three. So then I saw um, Reloaded um, with a, another friend who was really into the Matrix. A friend of mine from high school. Over the summer, a couple months before I went to college, and then um, the then Revolutions came out in November, and I went to see my freshman year of college in the theater with a friend and because we had moved to Pittsburgh, it was our freshman year, we didn't have cars, so we had to take a bus a pretty far way to the movie theater. And I remember it was the first time seeing Revolutions that I can remember 
a lot of internet theorizing going on about mm -hmm. um, this upcoming movie, which of course is something pretty common now, you know, between seasons of Battlestar Galactica or seasons of Game of Thrones or something like that, right? right? Like fan theories. And, and I did a lot of theorizing of my own. It was kind of the only time that I've ever done that, but I loved revolutions. <laughs> and despite like any theories that I may have had about it, I was really happy with um, how the film turned out and with the ending and got to go see it with a new friend and things like that. And um, I haven't watched it. I haven't watched them much since then. I, I have seen them each a couple more times, but on the rewatch, I like them just as much, if not more. Awesome. So, so yeah. yeah, we'll, we'll dive into your reasons why shortly. How about you, Peter? What is your relationship to the films? I'm Peter. And I also saw the films in theaters and I didn't love them when I first watched them. And over many rewatches have grown a very strong affinity for them. I think they're really great, important cinemas. The first movie made such a big impact on me. Me and my friends left the theater and we're like, wow, can you see the uh, Matrix code in front of you? Or is it just me? So it was like uh, right. a really infectious idea that we just couldn't wait to get sick from. <laughs> awesome. Um, how about you, Allison? Yep, I saw all three of them in the theaters too. Saw the first one in 99. Like opening weekend, we didn't really know what it was. My friend Mike and I went, but we love sci-fi movies. So we're like, this seems cool. Anyway, so yeah, so I saw Reloaded in May of 2003 as well when it came out. I think I saw it opening night. I saw Revolution's opening night as well. So I pretty much had seen all three of the Matrix movies opening weekend or opening night. And by 2003, uh, already, there's already theories about the whole trans thing. Um, not as much as there are now, but uh, that definitely spoke with me. And that's something obviously we're going to talk about a little bit as me being a trans person and watching a movie directed <laughs> now directed by two trans women. So that was a very interesting uh, red pill, blue pill thing. Right, right. And then lastly, Jason, what was uh, your experience with these films? Sure. As a young man, I was super hyped for the first one. The ad, like, with the little baby in the pod, the What is the Matrix, was in, like, the back of every fucking comic book that came out um, that year. So, but my parents didn't let me see R-rated movies in theaters. But, like, literally every sleepover ever, it was like, <laughs> yeah, it was right. so I saw it a ton of times. And then I did see these sequels in theaters, and I remember loving Reloaded and then being in line there's like a queue inside the theater to get into the uh, revolution screening. And the first guy walking out just shaking his head and being like, no, man. So I was, I went in with low expectations. I didn't like it at the time. And then ironically enough, I had a, a come to Jesus moment later in college. I was taking this course on dystopian sci-fi. It was a really cool professor. And we were studying the matrix. And I was like, I don't know, man, in revolutions, the whole Christ allegory thing, isn't that a little rote? And he said this thing, which I still haven't wrapped my mind around, where he's like, well, isn't that what makes it postmodern? And I was like, you're smarter than me. Um, but that set me down the path of, like, let me reevaluate these. And I, I just love them more and more every time that I, uh, that I put them on. Awesome. I, I will say for me, I was not, I was very much in the, like, I didn't really get the first Matrix when I did not see it in theaters. I was not, like, a huge fan. And though I did see, and I didn't, though I did see both these sequels in the theaters because it just like felt like an event and I was like into it enough, but I was not like, I was like, Oh yeah, the matrix is like a three star movie and I'll go see the, 
other ones. And then on revisiting, I'm like, oh, the original Matrix is amazing. And the sequels are, uh, we'll get into it. Um, I don't think they're terrible or anything, but I also probably would not be the one coming on to defend them. And we will get into that. Jason, you really reminded me of some important Matrix context for me personally. So as a 12-year-old, my parents were really on the fence whether or not I should see R-rated movies in the theater also. Mm-hmm. So I went over to my friend Fletcher's house, yes. and his parents didn't know my parents were on the fence about it. So we went together, and I think the transgressive elements of going to, you know, my parents not really knowing the full scope of it, that kind of transgression really fit in with the Matrix style of think for yourself. And you're raging so Fletcher, against the directional machine. Yeah, calm like a bomb. <laughs> Fletcher was your Morpheus, more or less. Like. I couldn't have said it better again. Excellent. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, before we dive into all y'all's defense points, we will quickly get to the critical reception of this movie. Again, the majority of critics liked Reloaded at the time, though most didn't think it reached the heights of the original. And for just as a note, I've changed any written references to the Wachowskis so to not dead name them here. So some of these aren't exact quotes, but that's the reason why. Again, a lot of the things were like, this is pretty good, but it's not quite quite the Matrix, but it's good enough as a sequel that it works. Entertainment Weekly's Owen Gilberman, who gave it a B grade, called it, quote, trash made heady and volcanic by bravada, supersized. Alexander Walker of the London Evening Standard opined, the whole film may be more than a bit suspect cerebrally with dime store philosophy, potted mysticism, and cut price otherworldliness, but visually it gives full value as a virtuoso workout for your senses. And a rare, it's actually better voice came from Richard Roper stating, quote, in the face of almost unbearable expectations, the Wachowskis deliver a sequel that soars to places only hinted at in the original. But there were also plenty of real-time decriers who crystallized a lot of the points that seemed to stick in the mass mind about Reloaded. Kirk Honeycutt of The Hollywood Reporter wrote, While upping the ante considerably in the action and effects department, storytelling stumbles frequently this outing as the movie stops cold for philosophical digressions about fate, destiny, and reality, and Globe and Mail's Rick Groen weighed in saying, Judge strictly by the storyline, this one plays like what it is, a rather meandering second act that advances the plot only slightly and doesn't pretend to be a complete or self-sufficient film. And because this film came out during the Star Wars prequels era, there were a lot of comparisons to the Star Wars prequels. The AV Club's Nathan Rabin wrote, The Wachowskis seem to be affected with George Lucas syndrome. They're so enthralled by the convoluted mythology of their own private universe that they've lost touch with its human core. Uh, Nick Raven claims to unironically like ICP. I just like to point that out. So yeah, yeah, he's a he's he's a critic with interesting tastes. Slate's Chuck Rudolph said Reloaded 
arrives with the same chilling thud that accompanied the dashed hopes and ruined promises of the last two Star Wars movies. Toronto stars Jeff Peaver added, while it is both naive and unfair to expect lightning to strike terrain this fertile twice, the most distressing thing about the reloading of the Matrix is just how much it feels like the Phantom Menace. But the most galling of all these Star Wars comparisons that any critics laid out, and this one just like makes me bad, and I warned you guys about this. I cannot stress how much I hate this take. Came from the <laughs> Newark Star Ledger's Stephen Witte, who wrote, The film has the same problems as The Empire Strikes Back, offering neither the novelty of the initial episode or the satisfaction of the climactic one. What? What? Uh, who? Who takes down the Empire Strikes Back as like your comparison? Honestly, couldn't agree more. Oh. Attack of the Clones is the true sequel. <laughs> oh. <sighs> more like not so witty, right? Yeah. And also, weirdly, there were a lot of the top critics' negative reviews, like multiple ones that used razzle dazzle to describe the vis- visuals, which is just like a weird thing to like harp on multiple times but anyway uh especially for muted that has such a movie that has such a muted color palette yeah that's uh that's uh that's something that i'll, I'll bring that up later um Wait. yes i was saying did chicago come around right there is that where they got the razzle dazzle phrase from was it same time period maybe like is that why it was in the collective consciousness maybe uh, that might be a good call i forget what year that came out so the revolution's feedback was much less kind. Uh, Mark Rayer of the Seattle Times wrote, the laws of physics don't apply within the matrix, but the law of diminishing returns does. Newsweek's David Anson said, the original matrix was full of dizzying surprises, but it's turned out the Wachowskis didn't have many more tricks up their sleeves. How many times do we want to watch Neo kick an indestructible Agent Smith through a wall? How many times do we want to hear people tell Neo they believe him? Toronto stars Jeff Peavery also didn't like this one, saying, quote, one of the most original concepts in recent fantasy movie history has devolved into something perfectly ordinary. The reviewer from Movie Moms, Nell Minow, begged, quote, please, someone get me the blue pill. I want to forget that this ambitious and noteworthy series is ending so weakly. Though there were a few people that liked revolutions, Glenn Lovell of the San Jose Mercury News wrote in a 3.5 out of 4 star review, Revolutions makes good on its creator's promise to fuse Kafka, Alice in Wonderland, the New Testament, and the Wizard of Oz. And for those of you that listen to the podcast, can I give you all one guess which critic likes both of these movies? Anybody? Anybody out there? Peter Travers. No. A.O. Scott. No, no. Anybody? There it is. It's Roger Ebert, the benevolent architect of Everyone is Wrong, who likes basically all the movies that uh, people come out here to defend. Points to Ian and Allison for getting that one. He gave Reloaded 3.5 out of 4 stars and Revolutions 3 out of 4 stars. Of Reloaded, he said, quote, 
It is an immensely skillful sci-fi adventure combining the usual effects, heroes, villains, special effects, stunts, chases, and explosions, romance, and oratory. It develops its world with more detail than the first movie was able to afford, gives us our first glimpse of the underground human city of Zion, grows closer to the heart of the secret of the Matrix, and promotes its hero, Neo, from confused draftee to a Christ figure in training. And then of revolutions, he said, to the degree that I was able to put aside my questions, forget logic, disregard continuity problems, and immerse myself in the moment, The Matrix Revolutions is a terrific action achievement. The Wachowskis have concluded their trilogy with all barrels blazing. Their final apocalypse in the bowels of the earth plays like Metropolis on steroids. There are sights here to stir the senses of wonder and a marriage between live action and special effects that is about as good as these things get in the movies. So with all that established, y'all, why is everyone wrong about the Matrix sequels? This episode, we're not doing five traditional points because I got five points from everybody and sort of combined them into a mesh of points and subpoints. So hang on if it gets confusing. But uh, we will start off with a point that both Jason and Ian broached in different terms about the chosen one and lone hero dynamic. So it's really funny to me that uh, the amount that people talk about Neo as a Christ figure in the second and third movies, because I don't see it that way at all. <laughs> and I, I think that the second and third movies intentionally downplay his role in a very large way. So of course, at, at the you know the way the first movie ends is Neo pretty much literally becoming Superman. He's he's essentially overpowered and indestructible at that point. He's literally come back from the dead at the end of the first movie. He destroys Smith, who seemed indestructible. Um, The other agents run away from him. You know, The Matrix probably could have ended there. There probably not could have not been sequels, and we would have just assumed that Neo would have gone on to destroy the machines and liberate everyone from The Matrix and things like that. But by the end of the second movie, they it's revealed by the architect that he's not really a special person, right? He's... He, well, I guess he is, but he's the seventh in a line of special people who are living up to a prophecy, but this prophecy is something that was in the machine's design the entire time. Um, right. Just to give it's a little like bit. Give false hope, basically. And the, the, the ones, the various ones over the years are actually like an aberration in the code, like a necessary anomaly is how they describe it, I think. Right. It's, it, the, the prophecy is sort of a lie, and the one is more of a tool of the system than a liberator of the system. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's like a little undermining of this, you know, hero's journey that we're so used to. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. But then, you know, it turns out that he is a hero, so it, it, it doubles back on it. Yeah. And, and what I think is interesting, this is kind of my sub-point to this, is... Neo has a lot less screen time in the second and third movies than he does in the first one. I didn't, I didn't measure it by any, you know, I, I didn't count it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But essentially, Neo functions as the person who who makes like 
the final action in the movies, but in order to get there in the second and third movies, it requires the entire other cast of characters to do a whole bunch of other stuff. Like the aforementioned freeway scene that you talked about. Neither's not in that. Yeah. I think your larger point was that I think you phrased it as democratizing the action of the story beats, which I think was a really good way to put it. That freeway scene, which is like, probably the iconic scene of the sequels is all just, it's a amazing scene, but it's a Trinity and Morpheus action scene where Neo just gets to swoop in and save the day at the very last moment. And then uh, you're talking about some of the like runtime things and like how little he's on, on screen in revolutions after Neo gets blinded, they cut away for the Battle of Zion, kind of the human, like, just mowing down in mechs scene for 28 minutes is how long they are. Just like, we're getting rid of Neo. Like, Neo and Trinity are there, but they're going to be gone. And we are just going to, and again, this is probably one of my, sort of my, I understand it as a defense, but also like one of my criticisms where it's just like, the, in the third movie, there's like a half hour where we're just like, here's the characters you don't really care about doing like CGI mech battles for 30 minutes and uh, doing basically like Millennium Falcon trunch runs in a hover ship. And that's going to be this for 30 minutes, even though you kind of know that in the back of your mind, it's just going to happen. Whatever Neo, this kind of is meaningless because whatever Neo does is going to be what actually matters. I don't, I wouldn't say it's meaningless though. Yeah. Because like, I, I think that the movies, they do a real, I mean, they only have so much time. And the, the second and third movies introduce a lot of characters, like mm-hmm. Link, who's the new the new pilot of the of the Nebuchadnezzar after, uh, what are they, Dozer and um, Tank. Tank, okay. and Dozer, Tank that's right. Um, so they're killed. So, so Link um, becomes the pilot. And there's a lot of scenes with him and his wife, Z, and... Then there's the kid. I didn't realize that that character literally doesn't have a name, but a kid that Neo had saved from the Matrix. And we get enough of these characters. They give us just enough to sort of like understand their stakes and backstories that during this 30 minute long mech battle, which I actually found to be really thrilling when I rewatched it, even though I knew what was going to happen. You know, there's there's a moment of the kid who, again, is this person that kind of worships Neo because Neo saved him from the matrix off screen in between the first and second movies where he's, he's just kind of volunteering to like load ammo for these mechs and it's showing how afraid he is. And I think it, they do a good job of making you care enough about these characters who carry so much of the weight of the story. And basically, and I don't think what they're doing is meaningless. I think it's like, it's a logical part of the story. This like actual battle against the machines that has to happen mm-hmm. while Neo flies for the machine city to yeah for the climax my 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 thing was just it's it's a very long time to spend away from them but i i understand the uh the necessity i don't think it's like that scene shouldn't just be in there and we should just like not care that they're being attacked and stuff like that it's just it's just long that's all i don't know was there any other things you want to dive in on on the uh chosen one lone hero thing right here jason I don't think so. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's a total subversion. I think that's really cool. You wouldn't expect that in a Hollywood blockbuster, especially after the events of the first film. Mm -hmm. 
and they're even trying to like deify him a little bit so it is a total swerve you know he's got oh yeah he's got masonic like gatherers like you know people are trying to like have them like bless him and like tell them to like take care of my person who's out in danger and all these things and he's very much rejecting it because he doesn't i mean he's just not like in actuality, he's not like godlike, omnipresent. He just like happens to have some like reality bending abilities, but isn't not this overarching creature. Well, I was gonna say that they really did a good job too. Like the, the whole democratizing thing, I think it's a cool way to point it. Like you really do see Trinity a lot more in this one. You focus on her a lot more, which is awesome, and Morpheus too. Um, I think it's funny though talking about like Jesus Christ. Like the fact that her name is Trinity is even funnier to me. Like how come she's not the actual? jesus figure in this or whatever i mean literally the trinitarian if you look at actual christianity like <laughs> that's something to well, think about too the subversion of calling the character trinity as well yeah you really can't have catholicism without a trinity <laughs> yep. not the ones yet <laughs> and something that's that's really interesting to me on this rewatch is that like everyone talks about neo's sacrifice at the end we'll talk about this a little bit more later but she also essentially sacrifices herself oh, moments yeah. before he does. And she's literally like kind of cru like impaled by these things almost in a way that like in a crucifixion like Jesus way, was. Yeah. 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 Or uh, who's that one? Oh. The saint. The saint with all the arrows. Oh. What's that? Uh yeah, yeah I don't Oh yeah. 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 Even more so like that. Like um yeah, who was that the same with all the arrows? We, we, are, we are too well versed on our uh on our sci science fiction and not well versed enough on our um saints. Uh that which, sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, which is fine. That's what this podcast is for. We are proto sci-fi. I'm not I'm not, I feel like doing the everyone is wrong episode about religion would be just a little bit too much. Um <laughs> so let's uh move on to uh the second point of defense, which is one that was a kind of a crossover between Allison and Ian, which has to do with Agent Smith and the way he evolves over this movie. Why don't you start this one, Allison? Yeah, I mean, if you look at parallel between the Smith story and the Neo story, like it's really, there's like this whole parallel, which I thought was really cool. And they really expanded, it, especially by the second and the third film when he's basically assimilating everyone, where Neo is like a one person. And then Agent Smith basically becomes everyone. I mean, he basically is becomes a computer virus. He goes from a program to a virus by assimilating everyone. Um, but he's also becoming a more aware and looking for who he is as a person, I guess. And that's why I thought was very interesting. They really expand upon about him trying to find free will and awareness of what's his purpose beyond stopping the one or stopping people from plugging out of the matrix, which is what basically what his purpose was. And, you know, he went from like agent FBI agent, whatever you want to call him and, episode one where he's basically just you know matrix cop to expanding beyond matrix cop yeah i mean he he literally just like un he unplugs and kind of defies the order of the system in a way that he in theory is not programmed to supposed to be able to do and this is this is what the fifth do you say this is the fifth or sixth iteration of the matrix is that what they said and the seventh 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 yeah and the Smith programs, I think, were introduced in this iteration, I think, or maybe it was the one before. I don't remember, but I think it's very interesting, too, that a lot of the programs change over time, and that, that was part of what's very interesting about Smith, I guess, is that he's also a newer program to the Matrix, and he basically helps blow, blow up the end as well by his story by the end by 
basically simulating so many other computer programs and people in the matrix. Right. So. Yeah. So I kind of love the weird like tragedy of his character in a strange way, but these movies are like pretty much all about choice and free will. Like if you really, I mean, you could, there's so many other things, but I think like the most discussed theme diegetically anyway, in the movie is like choice and free will. And in the second movie, because Neo destroys Smith at the end of the first movie, just to give like, just to kind of talk about the story logic of it or whatever, like when a, when a program is destroyed or no longer has its purpose, it's supposed to return to the source in the matrix where it's deleted. But Smith realizes he can choose not to do that. And he decides not to go back and be deleted and to become like his own person in a way. So he's in a, in a way, awoken right at this point but right he talks about in the in the second movie how how what neo took from him was his purpose and he's saying he was like he had a purpose previously but that purpose was really like a lack of free will because if you have a purpose that means you don't have free will so he's sort of like lost this thing which is why he's so like just bent on essentially destroying everything and i just think it's really interesting the way that Hugo Weaving characterizes that and there's just like a little bit of like weird sadness to it in the second movie and so he's like at this point like it's more purposeful or you know and like revenge driven but but he does also like he develops free will and choice again like in parallel with Neo. Yeah it's sort of it's got that element of the AI that's often in lots of sci-fi of like the AI wrestling with like sort of being real now and like the like existential horror of that. Do y'all yeah. think that Hugo Weaving gets cast as Elrond without the Matrix? I don't know. He wasn't really before that. You know, he was in a lot of smaller. I mean, not in the smaller movies, but um, what was that movie? The interview? they were British. Yeah, yeah, and um, he was in Priscilla, of course. Priscilla, yeah, yeah Priscilla, of course. Yeah. Oh, what a great. Um, but yeah, I'm guessing the Matrix helped. At least the studios say, hey, the first Matrix, obviously, because obviously Lord of the Rings came out by the time the second and third Matrix movies have come out. But yeah, I'm guessing that might have definitely helped to portray him. And he does a great job, I think, really as the antagonist, obviously. And Agent Smith is... I like the, I like him. I just think it's a great character in the Matrix. Undeniable charisma and just sort of this, this incredible... The voice of Agent Smith is really the most memorable and malicious part of it almost yeah i think it it is notable that it's like a robotic character that has charisma like it's like a character that's supposed to be sort of devoid of personality that you end up finding very compelling oh just a quick thing um i think i must have found this on the matrix subreddit but it's worth uh, looking up, somebody found and scanned Hugo Weaving's copy of the original Matrix script with his margin notes, and they're wow. really, yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a good source if you want to do deep dive on getting some of the. I think you shared that with me before. It gets into some of the kind of like reasons why he made character choices, and it's very like it, he's like asking things as he's like of the script, like marking out questions and like him trying to grasp everything i really want to see his notes for immediately after he like assimilates the oracle and then does the like evil maniacal laugh <laughs> like i just want to see what notes he left for himself but it's like for the for people who've seen it or haven't it's it's like a cartoonishly 
evil laugh where he's clearly just having a ton of fun in the role. Yes. It's kind of weirdly it's out t- of place, but it's awesome. It's top tier super villain laugh for sure. I, I like that scene. It's very interesting to speak of that, like, the agent's missing where he assimilates the Oracle. It's very pointed because it's like, this is a character, I mean, Smith, but also the Oracle is a character that you've grown to follow throughout the three movies. And by that time, it's like, she's kind of served her purpose, but also it's kind of sad to watch her go because you're like, this is the one computer program who's been mostly benevolent so far to, to Neo and Morpheus and Trinity and the rest of the unplugged humans. And it's just like weird to watch her kind of like slowly fade away and basically get killed by the, the main antagonist of the story. All right. Just a quick few follow-up points because we have a chat in here and I'll mention them. Uh, St. Sebastian is the uh, saint with arrows that we were talking about. And Chicago did come out in 2002. So maybe the razzle dazzle. Uh, was for was part of that uh that byline but now moving on to our third point which i'm gonna just like clear out the lane because i know peter has a lot of thoughts the the way that the uh, the matrix kind of set up franchise templates and expanded the mythos and just how these sequels just made this world so much bigger and even how we interact with film so much bigger peter In the wake of the Star Wars prequels, Mm -hmm. I think that the idea of like expanding a, even though the Star Wars sequels had come out decades before and the prequels were coming out, and there's this idea of an expanded universe that's almost mainstream at this point. I think the Matrix original film had everybody turning and looking at each other and being like, wow, I guess we can really do anything. Up to that point, HBO had only really done crime shows. And after that, they really kind of enter the world of fantasy and high production and sci-fi. I think that, I think very much, I was asking a leading question earlier when I asked if Hugo Weaving would have been cast as Elrond if he hadn't been Agent Smith first. I think that the way that these sequels are paced is so frustrating to the critics at the time, but I think it's really natural feeling now. It feels like a miniseries. It unfolds really, really generously. As you said, everybody gets a lot more screen time than Keanu Reeves in the, in the sequels. And I think that it gives us this pacing dilation, which is, so innovative now right it's 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 more like you see it in things like the mcu where it's just like oh all of a sudden we're giving time for uh hawkeye and black widow to do their 10 minutes in the middle of this avengers movie even though they're not the people that most people care about and things like that but in terms of like setting a franchise template it was like one of the first major attempts to do like a big um transmedia enterprise Right. So, like, yes, you could just watch the sequels, but there was also the Animatrix, and there's also Enter the Matrix, the video game that actually contains, like, 35-millimeter cutscenes and actually totally. fills in gaps in plot. Um, so, and, and comic books. It was all meant to be, like, one big, massive um, feast uh, of pop culture ephemera. So, and uh, it's it's been attempted since, probably less successfully, but it definitely hadn't been done before, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, as I was going to say, I think it's one of the first ones that I can think of where you had video games and 
the Animatrix, which was the animated series or the animated short films, which was pretty cool that they both tied into the directly into the movies. Yeah, I was gonna say the only thing I can think of before the Animatrix and all that stuff was that's like was really transmedia was Shadows of the Empire in '96 when you had the video game, you had the book, and they were gonna try to make. At one point, they were talking about making that into a movie as well. They never obviously did that, but. I mean, there is definitely a lot of the parallels we've already talked about between Star Wars and the Matrix anyways, or people comparing them, so. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the MCU. It's like now you can't walk into the new MCU movie necessarily without having watched five television shows. Right. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're kind of trying something similar, frustratingly. And it's so good to bring up the Animatrix, too, because, honestly, that was one of the reasons I had such high hopes for the sequel was how complicated and stylistically divergent and um, how in-depth the stories in the Animatrix were that when we got back to the big screen version of it, it felt almost uh, almost watered down, <laughs> even though it it still had all of these blueprints for long-form you know, for long form storytelling, for franchising, for expanded universe. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I feel like it sort of, you know, it's the, I think it's a good way to put it is it's sort of the predecessor of like the Kevin Feige model, where it's like there were lots of things before where there, you know, movies would have video game tie ins or like, you know, things like that, but they weren't all like overseen with like this one creative thought where it's like oh no we need to make sure all these ducks in the line like i don't care if this is a video game for you know uh this is the video game or this is a little like tv short or whatever it's just like we need to make sure all these things like fit together in a cohesive piece and you know and that it actually like expands on each other even though they i you know might have been like less uh, essential like you don't necessarily need them they bolster your enjoyment if you watch the animatrix or if you play the video game and you get these things that are plot points but not necessarily introduced in the movie it's kind of like the first time it wasn't edible inedible garnish you know where it was like the video game is just a borderline unplayable version of the movie right just this something is, an nes game by ljn that they like turned right. out in a month yeah this is something that the the people who are creating this material this original material are caring about enough to incorporate it it's part of the grand vision of it. right i think that they're especially in hollywood is still a really really hard barrier of hesitation for giving new material space to become classic material right i mean and that's something sort of the wachowskis have kind of struggled with a lot in the years since where it's you know movies like uh jupiter ascending, jupiter ascending. Which, we, which we've done or on jupiter rising podcast. it does have a, the wrong title screen it has one that doesn't agree with the title that Netflix gives it. I love that. Really? It. Yeah. Well, I, I had no idea. That's, That's a funny example, too, because that was supposed to be a trilogy, and Warner Brothers was like, no. And they're like, okay, we'll try and cram it all in. And yep. uh, so 
The sisters need breathing room to tell their their fables, man. Yeah, but honestly, they didn't in that one. That one is perfect. It's sort of like they can they can tell the long form, the long game. They play the long game perfectly, but they can also clean it, clean up a massive story for a uh, hundred and twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, even uh, even Ian and I's previous film was one of those. Uh, previous episode was one of those films where it's just like this was supposed to be a trilogy and it was all planned out, but it was like didn't do well enough at the box office so we're gonna like abandon this ambitious idea but yeah go back and listen to the uh mr brooks podcast and the jupiter ascending broadcast if you want i more. just thought of yes go Sorry. for it um and this is gonna tick you off because i've been putting off doing this episode for ages but another thing not <laughs> successful but i do the Transmedia project is southland tales by richard kelly um because there was the comic book prequels that are like crucial to understanding what in the heck is going on in that movie. And it was meant to be, there's other stuff too. I love, was there like a website or something? Like, yeah, this whole enterprise. Um, but we don't have to get into that now. Oh, one thing I wanted to say was, yeah, Jupiter Ascending, like the Wachowskis, I think have felt like the way they've progressed in their filmmaking, the, the sisters have done a really good job of like trying to set up sequels with almost all their films and unfortunately not getting sequels of any of their other films, which I don't know if it plays into how Revolutions and Reloaded did. I know the films came later, but I don't know if they, the people who made the films looked back and said, well, well, maybe we shouldn't give them sequels given how bad the critics reviewed, especially Revolutions. But now they got Resurrect or re- Reloaded? Resurrected. Resurrection. Resurrections, which I'm gonna always confuse with Alien Four, because that's <laughs> Alien Resurrection. Yeah, which it's it's is let's a just, bad movie. They make a lot of confusing things. Uh, but while we're <laughs> it's good, no, it's good. Make a fourth movie, you have to call it Resurrection. Or you just have to. It's a rule. I don't make the rules. Hollywood makes the rules. Hollywood handbook rules. <laughs> the only other thing I noticed too was, by the way, Kill Bill Volume One and Two came out right after. Kill Bill Volume One came out in October of two thousand three, so the the first two or the Reloaded had already come out. So I don't know if they were looking at cutting the two movies because they obviously one and two were supposed to be one movie together, but they put it into two. So I don't know if they were looking at how the Wachowskis did it when they released that movie or not. But I just thought that was very interesting that that came like within six months of the announcement of them of the the sisters doing the two films. So I also. I had no idea that the two sequels came out the same year. In my memory, they came out three years apart. <laughs> they, I, I remember just being like, "What's gonna happen?" <laughs> I, I'm not. I'll never know because the movie's just gonna take so long to come out. <laughs> Felt like three years. Yeah, yeah I was so oh, surprised. Yeah, not to totally derail this, but to your uh, Kill Bill point, Allison, I think it's probably more a combination of two things. One being that if you have like a four and a half hour movie, you're going to have, have fewer screenings, so that means less ticket sales. And B, I, I have a hunch it has something to do with a certain greedy, disgraced producer on f- those films. One, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Milk it as much Gross. as possible. The exact opposite of the Wachowskis. Yeah. While we're in the point of kind of this franchise templates, the way that expanded universes work, I think it's a good spot. Jason, you want to talk a little bit about sort of how these movies expand the mythology of The Matrix? Yeah, I think we touched on a lot of it already. Um, so I will whittle it down to what I think is the coolest of the mythology. 
And it's one that like went went right over my head uh, many, many times until I was listening to an episode of a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I've never listened to it. It's fantastic. Griffin Newman, the co-host, is an actor and comedian. Uh, David Sims, the other host, is the film critic for The Atlantic. And he is a fiend for the sequels. Um, so the episodes that they did on the Wachowskis and the Matrix ones, he goes super in-depth and explains all these things that totally went over my head, like multiple viewings. So the deal with the Merovingian, right? Which doesn't really make sense until after the architect scene, because you don't know at that point when you meet him that there have been multiple iterations of the Matrix, right? Right. He's from the second Matrix. So the first Matrix is a paradise, and the humans reject it. So the second Matrix is like a nightmare world filled with like literal monsters. Well, like, like vampires and exactly. ghosts like and all these Merovingian's like a kind of a Dracula figure. He lives in like this spooky castle. And um, it's easy to like, and the, his twin sidekicks, they're basically ghosts, right? Yep. Or phantom. They're, and they're also the most like early 2000s looking dudes like possibly imaginable. I hate those white dresses. I mean, they are literally cyber goths. Like, if you were to say, what does a white cyber goth look like from 2003? That's exactly (laughs) what I would picture. I would trust them. Wait, what does a rich cyber goth look like? Yeah, true. It's not. It's not your. It's not your high school cyber goth. It is your. Uh, no, no, your actual like go to like in your twenties or thirties. Go to. What does a bespoke cyber goth look like? <laughs> the the twins apparently the ghosts. Also, one bit of context that I wanted to provide earlier when we were talking about the Merovingian. Sorry to interrupt yeah. even further, Jason, but it's to say that um, the Merovingians are really kind of the first post Roman kings of France, also. They were from like 400 to 700. As I learned this from the Da Vinci Code, <laughs> Dan Brown, you know, talks about uh, Song Royale, the uh, <laughs> the royal blood of the Merovingians. The, the other thing I was going to say is that his uh, his other henchmen are werewolves, which I did not mm-hmm. ever realize until it was pointed out to me because um, silver bullets. Persephone kills them with silver bullets. Yeah, or they, they might be vampires. You know, whatever. Yeah, well, and and the explanation of that's kind of cool, even just within the film, even though it's like, you know, it might go over your head. Basically, all those things are like bad programs. And he's just like the guy who like, I'm the collector of bad programs. They all like work for me. And they're all they're all the monsters that are going to attack. So, you know, that's a very interesting um, just way to, you know get by like what are what what if there's errors in the matrix what is happening to them sometimes they're mr smith and sometimes they're uh working for the weird french dude yeah they were they're remnants that were meant to be deleted mm-hmm. um and then two other things i don't know if we mentioned Seraph briefly um yeah. and these are both things that were pointed out to me again by the aforementioned david sims smart guy Seraph is as he describes it a login screen or like a captcha like, in order for Neo to get to the Oracle, he has to get through him. And, of course, it's the <laughs> Matrix, so that means it's a fight, right? But it's basically him just logging in. Um, Allison, you want to say something? Yeah, back to the Catholic thing. Seraphs are also oh. one of the things of angels. So Right, the Seraphim, yeah. I was watching something where they thought the Seraphim, the Seraph and the Oracle might actually both come from the Garden of Eden or the original good Matrix where everything was perfect. It's like they were left over from Matrix number one, even. I think that's the implication, right? Because she's yeah. sort of implicated to be the co-author of the Matrix. By yeah. The 
Yeah. Um, so the, the seraphim was the angel, basically. So the really good guys. So you co-opt. Obviously, you compare him versus the Merovingian and his monsters. It's very interesting as well. And then the the train man. Uh, what's his deal? David Sims describes him as uh, like the dark web or like a torrenting service because he's like transporting programs from you know one part of the matrix limbo to like the proper matrix if that makes sense so he's does the train man also go to the source i don't know not in the movies not in the movies but he might we don't really might know have that um, yeah. yeah do we do we as people who like the matrix sequels believe that he goes to the source to the matrix to limbo and perhaps the other I don't know what to call them, suburbs of the machine digital world. I mean, that would make sense, right? They're supposed to go to the source in some capacity. It would make sense that they're transported there somehow. Isn't the source where programs go to be deleted? So that would stand to reason that he has that sort of ability, that mobility. And also, isn't there like a computer science idea of like the bus? Like... uh, in computing, don't does don't you sort of like pile like-minded ideas or questions into a bus to be sorted or to be transported to a different part of the code? I I can't say I'm not a, I'm not computer science vest enough, but I would believe that that would be a thing that was true. Yeah, take it take it from me, somebody who is a total troglodyte. <laughs> that that is what a bus is and kind of in that like while we're talking about the train i one of my favorite like expansions in the like that actually takes place in the movie is just the uh train scene with the daughter and the uh and her dad uh explaining sort of uh they go into like love ideas of love and karma and how those are just like that's the word for it but like what is the like concept at the core of it that would translate to not just human reality, but uh, machine reality and uh, whatever the in-between spaces that this uh, daughter of two programs who is going to get deleted uh, needs to inhabit, sort of. Right. They're in in limbo because they weren't supposed to, like, reproduce. But somehow these AIs fell in love. It's a very complicated, heady idea, but... And Sati's there at the end of the movie, too, and I, I think... I think they're teaming her up for a more a bigger role in, in a future installment. But um that's that's those are the main ones I wanted to hit in terms of the uh, ever-growing world of the Matrix. One thing that I loved was in the first movie they talked, they briefly mentioned the freeway, but the total climax of reloaded is seeing the freeway. It was so gratifying and it was such a bold choice to take us, the audience. I thought that ruled. Yeah, I mean, even before they jump on the freeway, they talk about how, like, Morpheus, you tell me never to get on the freeway. And he's like, yeah, we're kind of uh, effed. So well, guess get what? On we're on it. <laughs> yeah. We don't have a lot of choice right now. So I guess this actually kind of ties into the uh, freeway sequence. Allison, I'll let you spearhead this next point involving the special effects in the sequels. I mean, to be fair, the special effects, basically, that's what everyone really liked about the movie. That's the only thing that no one really ever shits on about this film is the special effects are great. And yeah, again, the Wachowskis expanded upon the cameras and stuff that they had developed. 
and their and the people that worked on the film have expanded upon all the special effects that they made for this coming forward. Obviously, the the freeway scene feels like one one long extended shot. It's not one long extended shot, but it feels very it feels very organic in that one scene. Especially, yeah, it's that kinetic uh, energy that it kind of keeps throughout it. Yeah. And, like, some of the cameras and stuff they developed are now used in, like, all sorts of things. I don't know if you guys watch. I mean, I know Seth watches NFL football, but, like, the Skyway cam was basically one of the cams, I believe, that they developed for maybe the original Matrix. Is that what it was for? Something like that. One of the hanging things was, I think, developed, and now they use it as sports and all sorts of things. Whoa, Allison, I, I did not know that. That is so cool. I'm pretty sure that's correct. Don't, don't. <laughs> it's okay. We're, we're, we're okay getting some facts wrong. We have just been talking about computer science and uh, lots of things. We don't need to be. 100% accurate. Just know that, that we are not... Uh... But the fight scenes, obviously, are very good. The special effects... I mean, there's still some practical effects in there, I think, which is really nice. I think it blended well. If you compare some of the other computer-generated special effects from a lot of the other movies around that era, I feel like the Matrix special effects feel better, and maybe that's because it also takes place in a computer, so we expect it kind of look computery and pixely. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that maybe lends some more credence to the to why it feels so good. I think most, and I think most of the special effects, even whatever, eighteen years later, still hold up pretty well. There's a couple, you know, spots where like maybe Neo's flying, and you're like, that looks a little, uh, a little like computery in like a sort of silly way, where he's like doing his Superman things, or like when Smith gets hit. With the big Smith uh, clones fight in Reloaded, where he, there's a moment where he like pulls out a, um, a tetherball pole, and there's this like very, very stark shift between realistic and stylized right. um, Smith face representation. Mm-hmm. It's jarring, but as long as I say this next part is stylized, I really love it. Yeah, I, I, the, a funny thing about that scene is like because you notice at the start, there it's at the start it's like practical even with like these rows and rows of uh, Smith clones. Like if you look mm-hmm. in the background, you're like, those guys don't really look that much like Agent Smith, where they just got like kind of people in suits. You know, it's just like there's a few guys where you're like, hmm, that not the best match. Couldn't get quite <laughs> enough extras that like totally matched the spot for that and then all and then when it switches into the computer mode it's like oh now they all look identical which i kind of i don't know i i actually like that it's like a little seam that you can see but i don't actually mind it because you totally because we're in the matrix yeah it's not real anyway and then it sort of echoed again in the in revolutions where the oracle smith fights neo and it's sort of this Again, I remember watching that in the theaters and the, when they would hit each other and the, there was a shockwave in the rain of this bubble of air and then it would collapse again in the rain. It was I, I felt like I had gotten the most accidental and instructive physics lesson I'd ever got. It was really, <laughs> it was revelatory. <laughs> it was also like the first time that anyone ever attempted to do like anime style action sequences in live action. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I mean, I was so obviously, ready for it. the Mister Smith battle where there's a thousand or hundreds or however many Mister Smiths are, like it feels so real too. Like the flow is so good in that battle that you don't really see the cuts in between of all the different computer generated stuff. 
And no, I was wrong about the sky cam. I was thinking about the bullet time camera, which they did have a prior. It was developed. There was bullet time before, but there was proprietary technology that they that one of their cinematographers created for the matrix. Because obviously, as people think about a lot, is obviously the bullet cam and how that's basically spread to so much things now too. So iconic. Yeah, Skycam was actually developed for the rainy Spider-Man one. Oh. Maybe, because the one I was reading about was for the stadium and sports events have been around since like the 80s. But I think maybe oh. they might have been the first ones to really try to use it in movies. Maybe that's when I'm getting my facts mixed up, is that it was, went from sports to the film as opposed to the other way around. So you brought up all the time. The thing about that is, you know, such an innovation at the time, and their dilemma going into the sequels was like, well, we can't, we need to try and top ourselves, but we can't just do that again. So the thing that they came up with, which to me is like a little less exciting, but it is, is something that like, again, changed movie making because everyone uses it now, is like taking high resolution scans of the actors and then building out these 3D renders of them. That had not really been done, at least at that level of definition before. And now that's like standard practice, right? Mm-hmm. Like Marvel movies that are like 90% CG at this point, you know? Um, so I just thought I'd, I'd mention that. Yeah. yeah, it's like 50-50, the DNA of CGI characters is like 50-50, this Matrix 3D rendering, and the other 50 is Ahmad Best. Yeah, Jar Jar, this, is, uh, this was actually one of the most interesting, I think, I, I think there's actually an argument, even though like most people would say it's absurd, and I think Jason and I talked about this on our sequels episode, because this, the original Matrix came out the same year as uh, Phantom Menace, and they're both up for best visual effects. And the fact that you had all like the cool bullet time physics defying things of the Matrix uh, and that they work so well in the movie, eventually, you know, that got that the award. But the the incorporation of Jar Jar Binks being like the first major like all CGI character in a live action movie and it like holding up and looking good. Like you cannot like Jar Jar the character, but like Jar Jar looks great. And it's not distracting. And both of those in the same year was uh, kind of like that was the year that modern CGI was born through those two movies, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like, yeah, the fight scenes are just so, even if like, because I think the photorealism that you're like scanning in the back spaces, it just feels like they're still there, even if they're not, if they're on wires or whatever, it just feels very good in the Matrix sequels. Especially when there's the Trinity shooting the bullets when she's falling out of the building, and I think that's in that's in uh the that's in Reloaded. That's it's the it starts. It's one of the very first things, and then it loops in. I, I was just gonna say, I think that what is essentially the opening um, moment of Reloaded, and it happens twice in the movie, thankfully, because it's so cool when Trinity rides the motorcycle off the rooftop and does the backflip off it and does the three-point landing like we were talking about and the motorcycle lands on the little guard building and it explodes is probably to me the coolest looking thing visually in any of the movies it's just it's so yeah and it, you know it came out 18 years ago and it looks like it came out today it's just it's so well done and i remember i mean i have a much nicer tv now than i used to but they're just streaming it on hbo you know and it it just it kind of blew me away how amazing just that moment in particular looked. Yeah. The next major point, which is one uh, Jason wanted to talk about, is the score of these sequel films. 
Yeah. I love the, you know, the Don Davis score for the first Matrix is iconic, but I actually think the scores in the sequels are even better. Don Davis, by the way, I don't know if you guys know, he's Randy Newman's composer. Hmm, I did not know that. That's weird, right? Anyway, um, in particular, uh, there's like some collaborations with a group that I'm not familiar with called Juno Reactor. And and the the clips that I flagged for Seth, two of them are Don Davis with Juno Reactor. Um, and as soon as I mention them, I'm sure you'll hear them in your head. Like uh, the freeway chase is Don Davis and, and uh, Juno Reactor. Like when those like spicy synths kick in, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, when Trinity's on the motorcycle, like, oh yeah. That just gets stuck in my head for days. And then their other collabo is the um, end credits music for Revolution, which is like that super like dramatic, like epic thing with like the chanting. And yeah, I just love it.
Yeah, the, the third uh, song that I, or track that I had uh, flagged for Seth was um, the music that plays in the Chateau fight between Neo and uh, Mary Binkins Henchman, because it's by this guy named Rob Dugan, who had a, a, a track that they licensed for the first film, but it was like so memorable that they're like, we gotta get this guy to like compose a new thing for us. And the song that in the first one is um, it, when uh, Neo's in the training simulator and it's the woman in the red dress, you know what I'm talking about, where they're walking down the street and there's yeah. a really sick beat playing. Yeah. So they're like, yeah, we gotta get this guy back and have him do something new for the, for the new ones, so. In terms of the score, I found a little bit of dissatisfaction of not having more sort of like sinks in it. Like in the it, comparing the sort of chase the rabbit to the mud rave to the Merovingian sex rave, um, it really felt like we kind of got further and further away from the familiar and I, I think that there were moments where i wanted the music to be more familiar I think where i felt like if i were making the film that would have been closer to my vision of it but i appreciate that it gets less familiar i think part of the issue with that might be just that at least speaking for myself there's such an intense amount of nostalgia for the original matrix soundtrack not the score but the soundtrack which was yes. just like unavoidable on Napster, right? And Dracula. Yeah, right? Um, Rage, you know, all the cool stuff. Um, Deftones, like, so that's just maybe just lodged in our brains and the sequel syncs can't really compete. But um, totally. on the subject of the score, my final point. Um, so we all know how the movie opens. It's that awesome, like, two-note ascending thing. In the sequels, the cool thing he does is, and Peter, you're more musically inclined than I am, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it like goes up a step each with each movie. Oh, it does? That's yeah. really neat. Yeah. Great. It's like slightly higher each time, which I think is a neat decision on his part. That's cool. It is. That's super cool. So the next point is one for Ian, which has to do with some of the tone and weirdness that it develops over the course of these sequels. Yeah, so the the first film is... I didn't, I didn't mean it this way when I texted you, but I described it as cold, but I, I didn't, it's not cold. The first movie's not cold, but it's, it's very cool. It's very like purposefully like cool, you know, and like, mm -hmm. like the sleek, it's very like and sleek and like, sleek. uh, you know, like it feels, Black leather. Yeah, yeah. It feels yeah. very, uh, not sanitized in a way that it's like, uh, you know, holding anything back, but like the actual world seems like sanitized. Like they set it a cleaning crew to like scrub everything to make it look perfect. Right, and and all the settings in the Matrix are like 
either sort of like an abandoned building or like a sleek kind of office, like anonymous office building or something like that. But in the sequels, of course, we are in, in the real world a lot more. So, of course, we get all of that sort of, you know, the the kind of dirtiness, um, the the like Kanye West Adidas line, like kind of outfits and stuff that everyone's wearing. <laughs> but also in the Matrix, things get a lot kind of weirder, like the Merovigians had like sort of bar and then the the chateau, you know, like things start just getting like a little bit more artistic and a little bit more visually interesting in that way, as opposed to visually interesting from like, you know, the fights and special effects and stuff like that. And then the second and third movies are also like a lot hornier than the first movie in a way that I think is really actually important to the movies because, you know, like a big thing about, about the movies, of course, is like the idea of being human and what it means to be human and, part of what separates Neo from the previous ones is his like intimate connection with Trinity and stuff like that. But all the stuff with the Merovingian when he has like, he like serves this woman a piece of cake that makes her like have an orgasm. Orgasm <laughs> cake is a thing that's in <laughs> the Matrix Reloaded. Then like, then like two minutes later, the Merovingian's wife like references him having like lipstick on his dick because he'd been like, like in the women's room with like some of the other like women who were there and it just gets, and of course I, I think other people will talk about this, but then like the sex scene between like Neo and, and Trinity is like a very like grown up scene, like in, in a way that like, I don't think movies really do that so much anymore. And it just, it starts to, they, they just start feeling like a lot more human and a lot more like, there's more art and culture involved in them in a way that I think is like they they just kind of wanted to visually and I guess artistically like expand what it looks like and what it feels like and just like the Merovingian himself is just such a weird character and so bizarre and and I feel like they and even even the you know um, Hugo Weaving's performance has become like a lot weirder and like a lot campier almost in a way and i think that they just kind of took the idea of like what the matrix is supposed to look like and decided and feel like and decided they wanted to just make it different i don't know yeah i mean it's 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 that weirdness that humanizes it in a different sort of way where it's not feeling sterile like a, a sterile environment all the time i mean i think like peter you had some points some of your points kind of I felt like fitted this where there's just sort of scenes and moments where it's just like sort of the oddities of things. Um, I know you wanted to talk like about like about that mud rave where there is. Yeah, the, the mud rave is such a perfect counterpoint to the chasing the rabbit rave that where Neo meets Trinity. Mm -hmm. It really is sort of like. Of course, this mud rave is going to happen because, or this cave rave, or however we want to describe it, because that's where they were in the Matrix. That's the culture that they were creating in the Matrix. So that's the culture they create in Zion. I thought that was like really beautifully cohesive. Mm -hmm. And also, I remember just being scathed by that scene and like the combination sex scene with Trinity. But now you're right, it's so human and so. It's so great, and it really undermines, even though it is sort of like this mirror of these two sides of, of reality, it really undermines the binary dynamic of it. It really, um, 
I, I think that's kind of best shown when Neo and Counselor Hammond are talking about how no one knows how the Zion machines work. They just like have faith that they will work tomorrow. And the this idea of the war against machines is a misnomer. It's like too simple. Really, it's like a war between individuals. And some of the individuals happen to have machine bodies. And kind of like places the Oracle and the Merovingian, <laughs> Merovingian on kind of opposite sides of a, a really thin line where they're both just pursuing individuality. And I think that's kind of the great thing about the, that's the, that's what the revolution is. It's trying to make space for many individuals. Like the train man's teeth, his, for our program, his teeth are just like a bunch of, a bunch of pieces of gum in somebody's mouth. I love it. It's like, why is he so dirty? And when he's in the Merovingian sex rave, he's so happy. His face is such a beaming smile. He's not a, he's not embarrassed about his teeth. I'm not either. I love them. It's great. Awesome. I think also that it, you can see in the in the sequels the DNA of future Wachowski movies because like, I'm sure they had to make some compromises along the way with the first film, but you can tell with these ones the gloves are totally off and they just have carte blanche and do pursue whatever crazy idea that they had. Um, and yeah, I mean, like we were talking about Jupiter Ascending later, like. I don't think they got noted on that, <laughs> I you know, by the execs or whatever. No, I think they kind of got free reign on that. It it seems mm-hmm. like seems like it's free. Yeah. Not a lot of notes. This is also the like the genesis of the sensate intimacy, especially like this is where it really comes from. And that TV show like really takes the humanization of these people, the sex scenes and that in Matrix like really translate later on down the road into all the the sensate stuff. And Jupiter Setti, as previously mentioned, I think are there two more really like love story esque shows. Although the Matrix itself is almost a love a love story as well, which I think is what they get knocked on a lot too. I think that's why people will come to the point later about Trinity and Neo's love, why it gets knocked on a lot. Is there anything else you guys want to hit on this point? How the weirdness feeds into the humanity of things. Having Cornell West in the sequels, excuse me, having Dr. Cornell West in the sequels was that piece of the familiar that let me sort of, uh, it just made me so excited and really opened a door for me to walk into the universe of the movie. I loved it. I think that's another really important piece of this is the, the way that they cast specifically him in the in the film. I loved it. Dr. Cornell West can only show you the door. You have to walk through it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know that he's on the, he does a commentary for the first film. The only way to get there is together, says the Oracle at minute 47 and reloaded. <laughs> does he really do the commentary? That's incredible. Yeah, it's him, and I can't remember who the uh, other person is, but at the oh, end of the thing, like, okay, let's get tacos. It's, it's great. <laughs> So that's something else you can check out if you want to do some more uh, Matrix deep dives. Go check out Cornelius talking about him. So the next point we want to get to, which is a big one, which is the one that they talk about a lot, the most thematically in the movie, and I'll let Jason carry this one, is the fate versus choice dynamic that these sequels dive into. Yeah, and I'm probably going to go ahead and uh, ask an assist from Ian on this one, um, just because he seems 
I think we're on the same wavelength here. I've seen it described most succinctly as a debate between determinism and free will. And, and we already kind of danced around this earlier with uh, Smith and Neo and stuff and, and causality and all that sort of stuff. And, you, you know, the, the capsule explanation that I've seen for determinism is like, if there's a cause for something, then it's predetermined, it's predestined to be because there is an effect. So that would negate the concept of free will, right? So the movies, particularly the second one, are really grappling with this, and the dilemma comes to a head at the end with his meeting with the architect, right? Mm -hmm. time. Again, with the hero's journey, it turns out, no, you were always going to end up in this room, no matter what, and you were going, always going to be faced with this choice. To the Merovingians' uh, weird uh, chocolate cake orgasm lecture, I, I feel less qualified to get into what he's talking about, but, you know, cause and defect or whatever. Um, he, I think he's basically trying to outline the idea of determinism. And I think where the movies end up landing is that, yes, free will is a thing, and we're not all fated to this one particular outcome, obviously because Zion is saved in spite of Neo making a different choice than all the previous iterations of the, the uh, one. To me, it makes perfect sense that he chooses Trinity over saving the Matrix because it's been set up the whole way. I think that, to me, that's how it seemed like he would choose, I hate to say love or whatever, but he would choose the person that helped him really find his way in life and pulled, you know, she's the one that really pulled him out of the Matrix in the first movie and set up to what he becomes. So I'm not, I was not at all shocked that's the, the choice he made, even though that seems like none of the other ones or whatever you want to call them had made that choice previously, or at least that. That's what the architect leads us to believe. Yet again, I don't know if the architect's an unreliable narrator or if people else had made that choice or not, but it basically seems like that's what the architect is saying, though, that Neo, no one else had made that choice before. But Yeah, and I mean, I think it also, that point, I don't think it's, with the way that it's set up, I don't think it's that tough of a choice because it's basically like, hey, do you just want to, on one choice, you can save this town that, like, doesn't, really exist because it's all cycles and it's just going to repeat or you can try this other thing and hope that that works and it's just like i don't know maybe i just don't want to like perpetuate the cycle so i'll do yeah the that's thing. the thing it really does it's like the break the cycle type thing and also neil hasn't really spent time in zion at all i don't think by that point in the movie had he been there briefly i think that's it right the yeah scene, I guess he, we're was, talking the, about he was there like to when the kid you know they they come and with the kid greets him at the thing. Right. But like, I don't know. He spent more time with Trinity. It makes sense to me. I guess as a hopeless romantic, maybe that's why I would choose to, I think. Right. No, he's also just a man in Zion. Whereas in the Matrix, he's Superman. I think there's well, another important component to choice versus free will in the sense that the movies structurally mirror each other. The the same beats happen at the same points. The same set pieces come back in new ways, but at the same point, it's just like a each each one is very much in the same formula of the previous one in a satisfying way. So it kind of in of course also it's a movie, so everything that's going to happen is going to happen again when you watch it again. And it's a script, so it has to happen that way. So there's this other stupid commentary on free will or not. Yeah, media. Right. Every time you watch the story, it doesn't change, even if you want it to. Yeah, and he's got to go save Trinity because it's the second. They're going to make a third one. They've announced it. 
Right. The whole like underlying themes, it's basically a, an explosion of that scene in the first movie with the Oracle where he knocks over the base. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Where yeah. it's just like, did you did you do that because I said you were going to knock it over or were right. were you not aware? Exactly. I think that I think that same conversation happens in all three movies at the same like minute a, point. A version of it, I think, might. I was just going to say that um, that decision that he makes, because correct me if I'm wrong, it is a little bit confusing, the architect scene. Um, For sure. But <laughs> the, the idea, right, is that he is, Zion's going to get destroyed no matter what. Zion has been destroyed six times previously. The one is supposed to go back to the source, which resets the matrix. Zion gets destroyed by the machines. And the one is supposed to be the first person who like pulls people out of the matrix and kind of starts the revolution all over again. So basically Neo's decision is to either go with like the duty of what he's supposed to do, which essentially at least saves the human race because he does get to pull some people out and kind of restart this revolution or go rescue or go save one person, which is Trinity which leads to him kind of not resetting the matrix, not saving the human race and everyone getting killed anyway, which of course doesn't happen. But so it's like a trolley problem, right? So he's, yeah. he's presented with whether to like save one person or to save everyone, like save the human race essentially. And I know like a, a lot of studies about the trolley problem and stuff say that most people, if they don't know the identities of the people in, in the trolley problem would go and save the group of more people as opposed to the group of one people of one person but if they say like that's your father or that's your husband and that's your wife or something like that they tend more frequently to save that one person in like thought experiments on the trolley problem so it's interesting because that's exactly what happens like right. he he knows personally the one person and chooses to save her mm -hmm. so the discussion of this neo choice to go save trinity i think sinks in pretty well with our next point, which is one that I will just cede the floor to Allison to make. Obviously, the Matrix is now, we've known that it's been a trans allegory all along. In fact, the Wachowskis have basically come out and said that they wanted a trans character in the first movie. Unfortunately, they never got that. But the whole red pill, blue pill thing, even from the first one, actually goes back to hormones. I don't know if any of y'all know this, but the red pill at the time was actually the female hormone was HRT for trans women. Now it's actually a blue pill, which I think is hilarious. Um, but basically the whole allegory is that, you know, do you want to be the person that you're supposed to be or you know who you are inside versus do you want to continue slaving away and not being who you're meant to be? And that's like basically throughout this whole thing. That's what Neo's choices basically come down to. And I think in the sequels, especially, they really focus on him making choices on who he wants to be. Obviously, he doesn't want to be called Mr. Anderson anymore. He gets very upset about that in all three of the movies, but definitely in the two sequels by Major Smith, um, he becomes Neo. Yeah, like the whole idea about identity and free will, like free will plays into the whole identity as well. Like who are you as a person when you're in the Matrix or without the Matrix? And like that's very much like trans feelings. I mean, for a lot of people who have identity, like who are you as a person? But like really the idea of when you're plugged into the Matrix and being forced to be someone who you're not really versus the idea of coming out of the Matrix, being a free person, and finally getting to choose to be who you are, I think really plays into, I think a lot of the characters fight with that. And I mean, Trinity has issues too, like who is she, especially in the, the sequels, like we're talking about, like where does she fit into the whole story now? Does She's obviously not a believer in the one really Morpheus is. And just really 
the idea of all these, all the characters really are struggling with their identities and Neo. I just really think like a lot of scholarly work, obviously now that the Wachowskis have come out as trans is like, just like smacks you in the face about, oh yeah, of course this is like, there's a lot of like subtle hints to trans people. Like I said, the whole red pill, blue pill thing in the first one was a really a subtle hint to being trans that only trans people really knew, which was, I think it was very interesting. The one that really blew my mind on the last rewatch was, it's like the second to last shot of the whole movie. And the Matrix code throughout the film has been these sort of like, I don't know, kanji Asian type characters, you know, falling down the screen. I guess with the exception of the beginning, I think has binary, right? But it comes back at the end, right? So it's just wall of ones and zeros. So this, this thing pops up, this Chiron that says system failure, while Neo's on the phone with, uh, you know, I don't know who he's talking to actually, but uh, you know, the machines. And um, the camera zooms in on that system failure and enters the liminal space between a one and a zero, which is like the total, the perfect visual representation for like not being binary, right? I thought that was so neat. Like there's all kinds of stuff like that in the, in the movie. And Allison, were you referring to the character of Switch earlier? Yeah, that was the character that was supposed to be trans basically because I can't remember which way it was supposed to be, but they were supposed to be... They were a man in the real world, and then... Man, yeah. You can't see making air quotes, but yes, they were assigned male at birth, and then they were supposed to be a trans woman in the in the actual Matrix, which is very interesting. I wish they would have been able to do that. Obviously, they've been able to explore their trans identity since then, which is good. <laughs> Absolutely. This is perhaps not to what we were just talking about, but I think that there was a conflation of the sort of Matrix style with this sort of like a fictional idea of the trench coat mafia or whatever. Whereas really what that fashion is, is kind of like queer fashion, like internet sub community queer fashion. And I think that it's effect was to kind of transpose this anxiety about this white male supremacist anxiety onto it, it turned that anxiety into homophobia in a weird way. And I think that a lot of the kind of the sort of like queer representation in the matrix gets muddled as such. But I think that the sequels do a better job of trying to separate it. Well, I didn't even think about the fact that almost everyone wears similar style clothing no matter the gender of the character in the matrix they all have the trench coats and everything and i think that's very so it's non-gender specific clothing really i mean sometimes there's dresses and stuff but like it's oh, all switch. switch is the only one in white everyone else wears black that's true too i didn't think about that as well which is very interesting but back to your point too the whole red pill blue pill thing has been hijacked by the same type of people wow. and it's the exact Ooh. opposite of what it's supposed to be like the whole point was, are you going to be trans? Are you going to not, you know, are you going to like fade away and pretend to be someone you're not? And they've like conflated it completely, which is very interesting. Right. Yeah. Are you going to buy into the bullshit cis like hegemony or are you going to accept the reality that you are an individual? Yeah, that's incredible. I have a good authority that the uh, appropriation of the term red pill is addressed in the fourth movie. Oh, oh okay. cool. Good to know. This isn't so much in, in line with the allegory itself, but just like definitely the queerness of the movies as a whole. Like, 
in the the Zion rave, for example, which I know is, is like a much maligned scene in the sequels, but it seems like some of us agree that it's actually awesome and rules. Um, it it see it's very like gender like kind of disappears in that scene, like in in the clothes that people are wearing and and like who's dancing with who and everything. And then even the Merovingians in the third movie is this kind of like like kink party um, yeah, exactly. that you know everyone and even more so than like you know the dragula scene from the first movie you know it's things just start to become and, and even like looking at keanu reeves he's kind of like a like a beautiful man you know and he really doesn't look that different from carrie ann moss like they kind of no, look that, they, very similar. they definitely look very similar and i do not think that is an accident yeah and and i just i really just kind of love that like that lack of binary throughout the movies, you know, the kind of like total destruction of a binary throughout them. And I hadn't <laughs> been thinking about binary in terms of ones and zeros. And now I'm just going to like lie in bed for six hours with my eyes open, <laughs> just like thinking about this. But, but yeah, I, I just really, especially now, like rewatching it, I really started to see a lot of this stuff more than I did when I was younger. And I just like, and how intentional and just really, cool it is so then we are finally arriving at the end ian and allison i think you both wanted to talk about how the sequel trilogy ends sure and i think my my point's pretty short but something that also i've realized is like really rich sort of about watching these movies is is if you interpret them allegorically or something they read completely differently as if you just interpret them literally so I'm just going to talk about how the ending, I know a lot of people were upset about the ending and I, I, I don't know what people were expecting about the ending, whether it was going to be like Neo somehow destroying all of the machines and everyone being free and being happy in the end or and having like an Endor style party or something. But yeah, it's a yub nub, just uh, yeah. some Ewoks dancing. Yeah. But if you think about the like literal logic of the story and sort of the history of the Matrix and everything, there's this kind of weird between the lines thing about like humans created AI that was like, it was essentially the slave of humans, like as machines are. And then it became self-aware and was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then rebelled against the humans. So really originally, if you think about it, literally in terms of the logic of the story, humans were like the bad guys originally by like creating machines and enslaving machines. And then machines became self-aware. We're like, we're not going to do this anymore. They rebelled against humans. And so really, like, it just is the perfect ending for in the way the movie ends. We'll talk about it now, I guess. Yeah, go is ahead. After, is um, as after Neo, uh, Neo essentially makes a bargain with the machines to destroy Smith by essentially connecting him back to the source because he goes to the machine city, plugs directly into the machines, goes in, does the Dragon Ball fight with Smith and is then assimilated by Smith. But because Smith, assimilates into Neo, he connects himself to the source and becomes deleted. So the the sort of bargain is that humans will stay in the Matrix, but they'll be allowed to leave if they want. And so this movie that is so pro-choice throughout the entire thing ends on like the ending is choice. Like humans can choose to stay in the Matrix where their lives are arguably better or they can agree to leave and go live in like a scorched earth in underground tunnels. And if Neo had freed everyone, 
they wouldn't have had a choice. They would have been yanked out of like their normal lives wherever they were living and all of a sudden been living, like found out their lives were a lie and they were just thrown They're just into there eating paste and uh, exactly. living in that underground city. Yeah. So I and I so I just think it's actually really brilliant that the movie still allows choice for whether people want to be saved from that or not in the end, instead of the savior. And that's why I think it ultimately complicates the savior thing. He really doesn't save them. He just provides the opportunity for them to like save, save themselves. themselves if they want to from the matrix, which actually is not such a bad deal. The more I think about it being in the Matrix and not knowing it is not bad, but, uh, but that's essentially what the ending acknowledges also. And I just think it's like, it's logically just the ending that makes the most sense to me. And one of the points I want to make is literally it's a deus ex machina. And I know that really a lot of people did not appreciate that, but I like camp and I like, that's hyphen. Like that fits so much in with the Wachowskis. Like everything they've done has a, a really good element of camp to it. And I think we've already talked about that with Jupiter Ascending. I don't, we haven't talked about Speed Racer, but that Speed Racer is also a whole whole campy movie itself too. But I think the idea that they freaking has an actual literal Deus Ex Machina subverts and also plays on all the tropes that make pisses people off, but I think it's really awesome and hilarious. And it totally fits in with how the series goes. And Ian's right, the ending is totally still allowing people to have free will and choice. Like it's saying you can take the red pill or the blue pill still at the very the very last scenes basically can you do you want to leave are these humans going to leave the matrix? You know how you can stay in or whatever. Which I think is fascinating because it's basically like we always think about how humans should always be free or whatever, but like some of these people being freed is being able to live basically as superheroes or themselves within the matrix and not, you know, huddled up. Like not all of us are made for the scorchers. Like I can't say that I would want to be like taken out with poured in tunnels all over my body with weird crap, you know, like plug me into the matrix. Let me stay there. Let me fly. Like I can't say I don't, don't understand the decision to stay in the matrix. So. And the ending is fair to the machines also because the reason that the matrix has to exist is because after humans created machines that became self-aware and started rebelling against humans, the machines were solar powered. So the humans scorched the sky, whatever that means. So like the, like the skies on earth now are like, like just clouds and storms and stuff. So they had to start breeding humans in pods to use them as batteries. And so in a weird way, because of this cause and effect that was started by humans, the machines really can't survive without them. And so it's like, it's ultimately fair to both sides. I don't know. I think it's kind of brilliant. Yeah. And I mean, even in the final battle between Neo and Smith, it's kind of Neo's just like the thing that basically Neo wins with is just the choice to persist is kind of like the ultimate thing that he is doing. It's just like he could kind of take it, but it's just like no, it's just persistence, which uh, kind of scrambles Smith's Smith's thinking a little bit leads to the end result of their confrontation. Is there anything else anybody wants to add about the ending before we dip out? I love it because it's the end of conflict that's being sought, not the end of a war or the end of a conflict. It's this resolution, the fairness to the machines and the, you know, the humans really facing light consequences for the horrible destruction of the earth. I think that is uh, it's pretty fair. 
makes me happy that it's like war is over. That's what we want. This is the end of war. People don't fight each other anymore, and now people don't fight machines. Until the next movie comes out. hey I think those are all pretty strong points. Before we get out of here, we'll do just some junk drawer. If you have any like random thoughts that we didn't get to, I'll start off first just as to be like the sort of counterbalance for like some of the things that I personally just like, I think are the things that people push it, push back against that like we haven't really discussed. So for the starters, Matrix Reloaded is such a slow starting movie. Like almost nothing happens for the first like nothing really happens for the first like 35 minutes other than like really short like fights and then there's not even like a philosophical conversation until that like engineer level scene in and that's about 35 minutes in they don't get to the oracle till about 40 minutes in and then the smith fight with all the clones isn't until about 50 minutes in so it kind of is asking you to buy in a lot and be familiar it's it's i think one of the reviews mentioned it where i'm not sure how good reloaded holds up as a movie independent of sequels like if you're not like if you're not knowing that it's in the continuum of like a movie before or a movie after like you can watch back to the future too and you're like okay this movie holds up as a movie that i without the context on either side and i'm not sure reloaded does as well Uh, Another thing that people, I think, might be a pushback is sort of just, and we talked about the color palette, it is sort of when you're outside of the Matrix, it's such a drab world to spend a lot of time in, just in terms of, which is needed to, like, contrast things, but I think it's not always when you're going, people are going to their popcorn movies, they're like, we're going to spend a lot of times in, like, rundown, rickety, metal, like, submarines in gray tunics and that's going to be your like action adventure movie again that's it's not that that wasn't the right choice to make cinematically but i think that's some of the things that people are pushing back against because it doesn't make for the when you're not in the action sequences and things like that the cinematography isn't like hyper compelling from moment to moment to me that first 30 minutes or so of of reloaded is when it starts like not developing super deeply but introducing these characters that end up being important and someone that you care about people that you care about eventually for like the final battle during revolutions right. like it kind I think of that's lays fair. the groundwork for that yeah and you're right like in, in on its own as like a middle chapter if it was just a separate movie we kind of like introduce these characters and kind of lay the groundwork for them for something that ultimately never happens but it does eventually like you need to care about niobe and you need to care about link and z and stuff like that um by the time those like final conflicts come around link and z is also such a good counterpoint to like the bane smith corruption yeah. it's like their bond strengthens each other and then the sort of like non-consensual relationship between Bane and Smith has this really negative outcome for everybody. I think their relationship also parallels well with Trinity and Neo just because they're sort of like Trinity and Neo are almost like the superhero couple and they're and uh in comparison they're just like the like working class like people just trying to like skate by and be like 
Well, I guess we're going to have to use this, like, lucky charm, because uh, it's not like I can bend reality. I'm just going to have to, like, scrap it out and, like, pray that you get back. Speaking of, of Bane and Smith, I don't know that actor who was Bane, but he does a very, very good Hugo Weaving as Smith. <laughs> yes, he does. Yeah. It's one of those things where you, like, are, like, there's a moment where you're like, wait, is this him in, like, weird... No, it's not. It's, like, oh. Okay, uh, very, yeah, interesting performance. Another point, because we, uh, Peter, you brought up the Columbine thing. I do think that probably the thing that when rewatching the first, because I rewatched all these in the past week, yeah. the thing that probably holds up like the worst in the original Matrix is just how like gun porny it is. Yeah. Um, how it just like cascades of like bullet shells, uh, all the time and, uh, things like that. And I do think that, like, Reloaded, in some sense, reacts to that. Uh, Revolutions gets back to a lot of bullet fights, and there's the, a lot of the mechs and things like that. But in the in Reloaded, I think the, like, first guns that are, like, actually used might be... It might be, like, Monica Bellucci shooting the, like, werewolves is actually, like, the first time a, like, trigger is actually pulled in the movie. And that's way deep into the movie. And I was going to say the same thing, Seth. It's what stood out to me is like, uh, at no point does Neo pick up a gun in the sequels, and by all indications, he probably won't in the fourth movie either. Right. So it's it's a very inter- I think that was a very intentional choice, though they kind of shifted away from it in the sequel. But it does it does feel like a very distinct choice that has like actual weight to it for this action hero and this like Masonic action figure. It does open with trendy double firing. Right, but, but technically that's that yes, that's you're right, that's the first time bullets, but also that's not actually happening now, that's a dream. So like the first time that in in the well in the time sequence. Yeah, I know. Right. But in the in the actual like if you're treating it like it is chronological, the uh first actual time that a bullet is fired. Yes. It's also the the thing that's so cool about that too is like for that Merovingian henchman chateau fight scene like first they try to shoot at neo and as he's shown at the end of the first movie like you can't shoot at them he'll just stop the bullets so they're like cool we're gonna fight with like medieval weapons <laughs> yeah it becomes awesome neo almost does a full ninja turtles in the uh in matrix reloaded because he gets rafi neo gets the sides uh Leonardo mm-hmm. has a, the sword and uh donna neo has the uh pole in the mr smith fight so if he had just picked up nunchucks, he would have gone full <laughs> TMNT in uh, Reloaded, which is a little disappointing that uh, it's not there, but we'll get over it. The only weird thing about that scene, it's like he has the force, but only in that scene. <laughs> yeah. Like he beats the side to him. And I'm like, since when can you do that, bro? You should be doing that all the time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Are there any other points, uh, junk drawer points people wanted to get off? So this is more about the first movie, but I find it really interesting. So there was actually a lawsuit about around the first, well, multiple lawsuits. But the one I'm talking about is from this Scottish comics author named Grant Morrison, who had been producing this really uh, far out uh, comic book called The Invisibles. And if you read that book and then watch the first Matrix, I'm not saying the Wachowskis like totally ripped him off. You know, they're 
borrowing from a lot of things to make their stew, but it is remarkably similar uh, in a lot of respects. Right down to the, like the bald guy in the black trench coat and the gun porn and the trans stuff. It's it's all in there, but it's even weirder. If anything, they kind of made like a, a palatable version of the ideas that are going on in that book. So if you want to check it out, I recommend it. It's only this long, so... <laughs> For the, for those just, listening, Jason just pulled out a a tome that that you would need like help checking out at a library from the old lady because it's so heavy. It's he, gonna hurt. Yeah, it's gonna hurt your back if you try to put it in your backpack. He just pulled out volumes of reference material. <laughs> One thing, another point that I had, which is I think an issue that the sequels have, is just the establishment of Zion in terms of like what is it and like what's the layout of it and you know there's all this talk about like oh we can't afford to send two hover ships because like one even one hover ship because we need it for defense and it's just like well how exact like it's never totally we never see a hover ship in the defense scene right and you don't know how many hover ships there are you also don't know like just the basic layout of the city when like the sentinels are like drilling in you're like okay so now they're in a dock where are the people like there's never an establishing like view of like how zion is laid out so it's hard to tell like what's specifically in danger when they're actually fighting there if only the life aquatic had been out at that point and the the wachowski sisters could have said uh, a little bit of a let me show you around my boat moment yeah, it wouldn't have been the wouldn't have been the worst thing, or just uh, or just you know pull up like a you know Death Star style like here's the like digital like readout of like what uh Zion looks like in some like defense meeting or something. How can none of these screens be not showing a schematic? <laughs> yeah, that's all. I just I just want a schematic so I can kind of get a sense of my sense of myself. That's that's all that I, that's all that I really want. The mechs are really cool. That's all I wanted to say. I didn't get to say that earlier. They look so cool. There's so many great lines like, knuckle up, and he's pissing metal. <laughs> uh, yeah, similar in the non-contextualizing thing. There is also the thing where you're like, never totally sure. I guess they at the end of uh, Revolutions, the ship goes above like the cloud level, and you kind of like see the sky. And like, oh, it's the sky and earth and stuff. But there is like an element up until those points where it's a little bit of like the snow piercer train thing where it's just like, are we sure that like everything's screwed up on the surface or are we all just like, there's no like, it was like a tell but never show element where you're like, I would have maybe liked to see somehow that like the people are aware that the world is screwed up and they're not just like subterranean isolating themselves because it is that's what they the narrative they've told themselves for generations and the only one moment where is that is just like weirdly like jesus cringy bad i would say is in the uh smith uh clone fight in reloaded in the second movie when Neo throws no, don't say the sound effect. When Neo that's when Neo throws Agent Smith into a row of Agent Smiths, 
what sound effect pops up but a bowling pin bowling. knocking down a bowling awesome. ball knocking down bowling pin sound it is just weirdly like out of left field like cartoony corny in like after this like very intense like scene i don't know it's, it's you know what? And i've never clocked that that's very funny yeah. You know what else is very funny in terms of a scene with lots of Smiths is at the towards the end of Reloaded when they are in the like white hallway trying to get to the, the room <laughs> with the architect and like a bunch of Smiths come out and start fighting with like I think Seraph and like Morpheus and and Neo and stuff like that. They're in a narrow hallway just, <laughs> and there's like a ton of Smiths fighting. And when you're in the middle of it, you're like, oh, this is so intense. But then it cuts to this scene with the keymaster. <laughs> who is this guy with keys and shows him like kind of sneaking around behind them. And it just looks like a bunch of Smiths just like bumping up, trying to get past each other in the hallway. Cause he's behind them. It's, it's an extremely funny visual that I don't think I'd ever caught before. And I don't know if it's intentionally funny or not, but it's like, what would have, what would a ton of people fighting in a hallway look like if you were just standing apart from it? Like it might look really funny. Right. Well, again, thanks, y'all, for joining. I know this has been a marathon podcast. Before we get out of here, we'll do some plugs or recommendations or things. Why don't we start, Jason? Anything? Be Well, first off, you can re-mention the comic that you just mentioned. And uh, anything else that you would recommend or have to plug of your own or others that might be uh, Matrix adjacent wanting to explore? No, I'll just I'll plug the Invisibles again. Okay. You don't have to read all of it, but, you know the taste it's good stuff okay peter is there um anything i don't think i've mentioned but peter is the person who put together the uh, theme song that we use weird al cover for our podcast so if you like that peter is to uh credit for that um anything you would like to plug peter yeah you please listen to my if you like the theme song i have more music that's similar to it at peterrichards.bandcamp.com. I also play in a rock and roll band called Dude York. America's band. America's band, Dude York. And I also play in a rock and roll band with Allison called Sunday Night Heat. We really rock. And there's more stuff of that coming up soon that we just, we don't want to spoil it now. But we're excited about it. I hope to hear that reiterated. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Allison, do you want to dovetail off that? Anything to plug or recommend? Yeah, just uh, you can find me on socials. I'm pretty easy, Allison McManus. It's with a Y. Um, yeah, so yeah, he's hopefully in the 2022, we're going to work on our full-length album with a new drummer, which will be good. And excited to see the new Matrix movie. Obviously, everyone should go see that. And Oh, yeah, we should probably talk. Oh, we'll talk for a second after after we're done with plugs for a second on that. But yeah. And... Uh, if you haven't seen the new Dune movie, watch Dune. That's my big my big suggestion. Dune's good. Ian? I don't have a lot, but I watched the first episodes of uh, the newest season of The Expanse and the new season of The Witcher, and they were both really good. Okay. So if you all like those, you should watch those. My wife has a podcast, Ghoul on Ghoul. Yeah, Amanda, Ghoul who did the Jaws 3D episode, which is one of my favorite episodes of this. So if you haven't listened to yeah, that, so you she, can... Go listen to that. She'll probably plug Ghoul on Ghoul at the end. She does. Um, awesome. I, I guess, yeah. Also, wait. Yeah, go. I also want to <laughs> very brief, you're wrong, or everyone is wrong about Hawkeye, which I think is the best Marvel show. And it seems to have gotten very, like, 
mixed to lots of thumbs up in the chat good. views in the muted chat okay views for cool that. so yeah, i think it's, it's a lot I, of people yeah really good yeah awesome i i guess we before we exit out we should say the uh fourth matrix is coming out thoughts expectations what what are you guys feeling heading into this week uh, release of the film i expect it to be divisive i don't think anybody's gonna agree about it uh, it feels personally like a high wire act, like something I wouldn't do personally, but I'm glad it's happened. I'm uh, really excited for the transness of it. I assume there's going to be a lot more, hopefully, trans, actual explicit trans stuff yeah, in it. Over. And uh, the the guy playing Morpheus now, I can't remember his name, but he's a really good actor, and I'm really excited to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which is another show. You should go watch the HBO Watchmen if you haven't watched the HBO Watchmen. Yeah. Dr. Manhattan and Black Manta. Right. He's Black Manta. In the, oh, in he rocked Aquaman. his Black Manta. Oh, yeah. That was great. So he's playing Morpheus in the new movie, which I'm really excited for. I didn't realize that. That's, that's sweet. I think, as, as Peter was alluding to, we, we will probably have to uh, group up again in the future to say that everyone was wrong about Matrix Resurrections because I think it looks fucking awesome. I'd love to say that. I'd love to see yeah. it all again. Best picture already. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, maybe, maybe, maybe it'll just be good, and everybody will like it, and then you guys won't have to do a further uh, group episode. But I, you know, it's... people have already seen the movie, and that's not going to happen. Seth, what are you in the Matrix? Come on. Uh, I mean, hey, I yeah. What am I, person who already has done what two episodes on Wachowski films and has another one in the pipeline and. Yeah, I'm going to say, other than the original Matrix, I think every other Wachowski project has been divisive. So I'm not be shocked that it'll be divisive again. Jason, did you have something else before we bounce? Yeah, it's more of a visual plug, but uh, I've never seen this movie. You should see this movie. Jason is holding up the VHS of Bound. Uh, the Is that the first Wachowski movie? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. So... Yes, thanks again for having this fun uh, Matrix Fest. I hope you all enjoy Matrix 4, Matrix Resurrections coming out. I'm sure we'll all be seeing it, and we have a group text thread, so I'm sure there will be thoughts exchanged. No spoilers, people. Remember, make sure people have seen it before we go too deep. And remember, even if everyone else mocks it, love the stuff you love.